Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org. The Voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com, nave spelled N-A-V-E, I would love to hear from you. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, walterparks.com, for more on Walter's music. Just a reminder, we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to start. I have a lot of new guests lined up in the next month or two, so I'm looking forward to airing those shows. Meanwhile, I'm going to go solo today. As I often do, I'm thinking about storytelling and poetry and language and how we communicate in the world. And when I do these solo shows, it's interesting for me because it helps me to focus my thinking on those broader subjects that language addresses that we all attempt to address in our storytelling, in our daily lives, in our comings and goings, workplace, play place, home place, community, and sometimes alone, sitting in a chair like I'm doing now. I am in New York City at a friend's apartment in an area called Stuyvesant, First Avenue and 16th Street. That's where the building sits. Stuyvesant area or as people refer to it these days, Stytown, is a complex of 110 red brick apartment buildings. And those apartment buildings are on 80 acres. And the 80 acres stretch from First Avenue to Avenue C between 14th and 23rd Street. So you can imagine how big that is. It's a huge, huge area that houses around 27,000 people, give or take. And it was built between 1945 and 47 by Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And the idea was to create housing for the veterans after World War II. Metropolitan Life kept the rents very low. And many, many of these apartments, I don't know exactly how many, but probably most of them, were rent-controlled, which meant the rent could go up a certain percentage every year, but not so much that it would break the people who were living in the area. So today, many of the apartments here in Stytown are still rent-controlled. That said, many of them are not. So the market value of an apartment in Stytown would run between three and $6,000 a month, which may seem like a lot to people who are living outside of the New York area, but here it's market rate. People work hard, they earn their money, they pay their rent. It's a young person's area, really, and because of that, people double up on the housing and share the space, which does reduce the rent and make it easier for everybody to afford to live here. Another thing that's interesting about Stytown now, when you leave your building and you go out into the area where all the other buildings are, the trees are huge. The trees are sometimes 
five stories high. So in the summertime, this place is a forest. It's almost impossible to believe when you walk out of one of the buildings and look around that you're in a big city. It really does look like an easy, low-keyed city park anywhere in the world, really. So it's, it's amazing to me. And of course, birds, squirrels, gray squirrels, black squirrels, occasionally a white squirrel will run by. They're all very active here. And this apartment that I'm in is really quiet. It's beautiful. It's on the 12th floor and it has lots and lots of light. And my friend Paul, who lives here, was able to get this apartment from his aunt who actually acquired it in 1960, 61 or 62, and kept it in the family. And Paul has had it as long as I've known him. I met Paul in 1996 at the National Poetry Slam Championships in Portland, Oregon, when he was filming there. And we got to know each other a bit. He even put me in his film. I did a terrible improv poem while I was serving hot dogs at the Poetry Slam Saturday afternoon baseball game, or it was a softball game, I think. Anyway, Paul and I got to know each other, and he invited me in 1996 to come and visit him in New York. I did. I came to this apartment. It's changed over the years because things evolve. People move. Paul now has a family. They live here and enjoy this place. It's spacious, well-appointed, lots of books on the shelf, nice overhead fan, a plant in the corner, some paintings on the wall, and a view out the window. Very, very nice. And so I'm grateful to be able to come once in a while and visit here. and. I even have a chair. I'm sitting in a chair right now. And Paul's had this chair since his aunt moved in. She may have moved the chair in in 1960. It was recently redone, so now it has a beautiful tan cushion and a bit of a pink border that goes round. And the pink border matches the brownish color of the, of the wood. So it's a beautiful chair. Paul will often say to me when I'm talking to him on the phone, he says, well, we saved your chair. Your chair is waiting for you to come and sit in. I don't come very much here, but when I do, I'm glad to have the chair. And in fact, I'm sitting in the chair right now. So in a sense, you're sharing this chair with me, which has been here for a long, long time. And as I sit here, I'm thinking about the first time I encountered New York the first time I came to this city and why I came to this city. And here's what happened in 1972, 51 years ago when I was 22 years old. I'd been serving alternate service. I was a conscientious objector and in lieu of going to Vietnam to fight, I had applied for my conscientious objector status from the draft board in Asheville, North Carolina, and they had given me, granted me, this status. And what that meant as a conscientious objector, conscientiously opposed to the Vietnam War, the draft board allowed me to choose a job in the States that would serve the community, and one of the traditional jobs, of course, orderly in a hospital. So after I received my conscientious objector status, I managed to find this position at Wesley Nursing Center on Shamrock Drive in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
my job was really simple. Seven to three shift. I would get there at 15 minutes before seven for the staff meeting. Seven o'clock, I would go on the floor. I would have five or six patients. And my job was really simple. Go in, ask them what they needed, see if they needed any kind of cleaning, change their bed sheets, whatever they needed, take breakfast, then give the patients a bath, then change their sheets and spend the rest of the day helping the nursing staff take care of the patients up and down the hall. I believe I was paid $2.25 an hour, and back then that was enough to pay the rent. I think my rent might have been $60 a month. I didn't have a car. I rode a bicycle back and forth to work, and in fact, my bicycle was my only transportation when I was working for those two years. I enjoyed it. I loved getting up in the morning very early and riding my bicycle as fast as I could to the workplace. So when I would arrive at the workplace, I had a chance to take a shower, change into my work clothes, go upstairs and do the job. So by the time I hit the floor at 7 a.m., I'd already ridden maybe 10 miles or so on the nearly deserted streets in the early morning hours of Charlotte. It was delightful. Even in the wintertime, it was really great. I put the gloves on and wrapped up and rode really hard and got really warm and arrived at work and put my white work clothes on, starched and clean, and went on the floor. And the day just went by like, like, a, like lightning, really. It was quite fast. And I enjoyed working with those patients. Of course, I was 20 years old and had been riding my bicycle all the time. So I w was as fit as anybody could be, could not be more in shape, could not be younger, could not be more vital, could not have more of my life in front of me. On the opposite side, my patients were old and they were at the end of their lives. So what I learned, what I remember most, and this happened often and it happened with more than one of the, of the patients, Reverend Gibbs, for example, he was a Methodist minister. He loved to smoke his cigars and watch the soap operas. I learned a lot about storytelling watching the soap operas with the patients while I was working at Wesleyan Nursing Center. So Reverend Gibbs would often tug me aside, tug my shoulder and say, or my sleeve and say, come, come here, come here for a second. I, I need to tell you something. And he would have a frumpy old bathrobe on and the cigarette or the, the little cig cigar ashes would sprinkle onto his uniform or his, his bathrobe. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're really young. You're young, he would say. You're young, you're young. He said, now, what you need to do? So I'm listening. What, what do I need to do? I'm thinking. He said, you have to live. Don't wait. Don't wait to do anything. Go out there and live right now. Do it, do it the way you want to do it. Now, I was doing what I thought I wanted to do, and I suppose even to this day, all these years later, I'm still thinking about, well, what am I going to do next? But he, Reverend Gibbs was talking about something different. He was seeing me and seeing some of himself in me. And by offering his advice to me, he was also saying, to himself, maybe I didn't do as much as I would like to. Maybe I should have done more. And maybe it made him feel better with his cigar and his ashes and his bathrobe and his slippers and his soap opera on. Maybe it made him feel better to tell me that. Maybe he was thinking, well, if I can tell this fellow these ideas and maybe this fellow will go out and do those things like I didn't do, then, hey, I've done something important. I still have relevance. 
Reverend Gibbs wasn't the only one to say that. Others said it in their own way as well. I heard that. And as I was working on those floors day in and day out, and again, I enjoyed the work. It was great. I felt a little confined because I wanted to go out and see the world. I wanted to take Reverend Gibbs' advice, go out and do something. Make a ruckus, as Seth Godin says in his podcast, Akimbo. I recommend that podcast. But that's 2023. This is 1972. I wanted to go out and make a ruckus. I wanted to go out and do something. So I was a, a little little anxious about getting this work over so I could find out what's next. Even so, I started to see my life on a continuum, a line, a timeline, if you will. I am 20 years old, I thought, and I will be moving down this timeline slowly like a horizontal clock would move. You don't see the clock hands moving, nor do you see your life moving. It's the now we're always dealing with, the eternal now. And yet that timeline was moving. So when I was going up and down those halls, those halls were straight, like the timeline, from the nursing station down to the end of the hall where the bedrooms or the, the patient's rooms were, going back and forth. I was moving up and down the hall, and I was moving down that timeline, and I thought, if I can pay attention to this timeline and visualize myself on it as I move down the timeline, and I get closer and closer to the age these patients are. Now, I'm talking to you in my chair here at Paul Devlin's house in Stuyvesant, which was built in the 40s, just after World War II, and was very active in 1949, the year I was born. Here I am, sitting here in this chair, the age of many of the patients I was able to take care of when I was 22, working at Wesley Nursing Center, walking up and down the hall, thinking about that timeline taking me down to the years when I grew old. And now that I am in my 70s, it's hard to avoid the fact that, hey, youth is gone. Something else has replaced it. You lose a little bit in youth, you gain a little bit as time goes on, and things get replaced and thoughts happen, and here I sit. You might be wondering what I did with all the advice Reverend Gibbs gave me. Well, I wish I had a very specific answer to that. But as you may know, when somebody gives you a piece of good advice, like Reverend Gibbs gave me, you let it sink in. You don't necessarily act specifically on it. Maybe sometimes you will make a choice that's very specific, like I'm going to decide to go down this road instead of that road. You know, here we are at Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. You know, two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. And then, of course, you take one road and leave the other one behind. And later in the poem, you say, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Often people will quote that last line, and that has made all the difference with a bit of pride as if they're trying to tell everybody that they have gone down the most unique, the most unusual road. They're the most individualistic amongst the, the crew they're talking to. When in fact, the road you take is the 
most individualistic road you could possibly take and anybody could possibly take because it's your road and you're the individual. But it's not any more outstanding than the other roads that everybody else takes. So that's what I like about that poem. It's not a poem about how unusual I am. It's really a poem about how we are all more or less the same when it comes to life choices. And sometimes you let advice like the advice Reverend Gibbs gave me, which is to live, to be out there, do the things you want to do. You let it be a background song that's playing somewhere in your head, or sometimes you bring it forward and it becomes a very specific motivation for making a specific decision. Now, I had not had any of Reverend Gibbs' advice when I chose to become a conscientious objector. I'd never met Reverend Gibbs. I didn't have the job at Wesley Nursing Center. I was a 20-year-old fellow having flunked out from college after having spent two years at a little junior college called Brevard College. Brevard College is still there in Brevard, North Carolina. It's now a four-year school, but back then it was a junior college. They had classes six days a week, and going to chapel was on Wednesday night and on Sunday, I think. I was not a big churchgoer, but I conformed. I went. I listened to the services because that was part of the whole show. So I would sit in my auditorium seat and listen to whatever the minister had to say on the Wednesday night or the Saturday night, just like I'm sitting in this chair here in Stuyvesant. Now, the reason I'm here is because I'm on my way back from Paris. I've been in Paris since September 11th, and I just returned back to the States day before yesterday, stopped over to visit my buddy here in, in New York, and as I said, I'm headed down to the Leaf Festival. Now, I was in Paris visiting another friend. I'm a very lucky person to have many dear friends in my life, and I'm so grateful, and I hope you have the same experience with some of your friends. I am grateful those people are in my life. So I was in Paris visiting my good friend John Van Hasselt. Now what does John Van Hasselt living in Paris in 2023 have to do with me sitting in chapel on Wednesday night at Brevard Junior College in Brevard, North Carolina? Well, you probably have already guessed it. John was a student at Brevard College along with me. He and I knew each other. We met and became friends at Brevard College. So what does John Van Hassel have to do with my conscientious objector status? It wasn't what John Van Hassel did as much as how we interacted with each other as we got to know each other. I am a native of Western North Carolina and I grew up in Asheville. And I grew up on Brevard Road. I grew up in the country. I've talked about this before on this show. John grew up in Holland. His father was the Dutch ambassador to Canada. John had a very different life than I had. When I met John, he was a couple of years older than I was. I was 18 at the time. It was 1968. He was 20. He was the foreign exchange student at Brevard College. He was the only one they had. He was the guy coming from Europe. When 
I was 18, my connection with anything beyond North Carolina was a trip to Washington. My parents took us on a couple of times when we were children. My brother David, Nancy, Sam, and I went on the trip with my mother and father to Washington. We'd occasionally go to Myrtle Beach. And I was aware that the world was bigger. There was more of the world out there. And sometimes when I would go to Myrtle Beach and stand on the shore, I would look out over the sea. You may have done this as a child. And I wondered what was beyond the sea. How come that's such a big horizon out there, I would think. And I look and I would peer and I would think, well, why I wonder, I wonder where, where Europe is. Now, what I didn't know standing at Myrtle Beach was I was actually looking at Africa because Europe, if you go north beyond above Montreal, that's, and look, look out over the sea, that's what you would see if you could see all the way across the ocean. You would see Europe from that point of view. I was about a thousand miles off and had no idea standing there as a little boy looking out over the Atlantic Ocean. And so I was unaware of what the world was about. All I knew was what I had learned listening to my father's shortwave radio when I was a young boy, eighth grade maybe. He liked to fool around with the gadgets in his basement. He had a little radio shop in the basement and he was always making little transistor radios and soldering things together. And he had this shortwave radio. And I would listen to that shortwave radio at night. Beep, beep, da 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 all kinds of stuff like that. And, and then I would hear some voice from another language coming over the radio. And it always seemed so distant, so far away, not unlike the stars in the moon as that I enjoyed so much when I was a boy looking up from the fields out in the country in Western North Carolina. So at Brevard College, when John showed up, in a way, getting to know him was my first experience with anything beyond my fairly limited scope. I just really hadn't been anywhere, geographically speaking, nor had I traveled very far. And I was quite aware that I didn't know much in 1968. I knew the Vietnam War was on. I knew that there were some politics happening. I had experienced the Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King, and also a Robert Kennedy three people assassinated in that, that time frame. So I knew that stuff was going on. I just didn't know how it affected me or how it would affect me or any of the implications that I now understand all too well. So when I met John, I was a bit starstruck because I'd never known anybody who had climbed the Eiger. Never known anybody who could speak more than one language. Never known anybody who could tell some fairly dashing stories about things he had done. I, on the other hand, I didn't have very many stories to tell. I had practiced judo in high school and did have a brown belt in judo, which I was very proud of. So I went around the campus telling everybody about my judo practice. That was my identity marker. Whereas John had what I thought were many identity markers. He had climbed the Eiger. He could ski. He had traveled the world. 
His sister was a very famous photographer in Europe, and he had photos to prove it. He was a photographer as well, and he was taking photos for the, the yearbook on the campus. He was also a bit of a celebrity because he was the European exchange student. I was really taken by all of that, but I wasn't so much taken by John, even though I really did appreciate getting to know him and still to this day consider him one of my absolute closest friends. What I appreciated was the spark that somehow landed in my imagination, a spark that John may be suggested by just a story that he told. So when you're telling your stories to people, be aware that even though your story might seem insignificant to you, it could spark something really powerful in somebody else. So respect those stories that you're telling. We were too young to know about respecting stories we told. We just jabbered and talked because we were young and that's what we did. But in all of those conversations, I came to realize how big the world was. And in some ways, John was the physical embodiment of the shortwave voices I had been listening to when I was a boy. So one of the ways I was influenced, of course, as so often you are influenced when you go away to college or to some adventure somewhere with a group of people, the conversations influence, influence you. My conversations influenced me. John, a fellow named Dave, a fellow named Steve, uh, other guy, another guy named Andy. I'm trying to remember all these people. We just talked. And in those conversations, I realized how little I knew. I thought, you know, I have no idea what's going on in, in Washington. I don't really know much about Vietnam. I don't know about any of the other situations around the world. I was ignorant, really, of politics, ignorant of the news. Of course, I'd watch the news when I was a boy on the television. We would watch the evening news. Sure, I remember the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember being so afraid, thinking that I was going to die because the Russians were going, or the Soviets, who were Russian, were going to launch nuclear weapons from Cuba and land on my head. I was terrified, but I didn't have any background other than the television. So in that time at Brevard, talking with John and all of the rest of his friends, I thought, I have to do something to remedy this. What, what, what can I do? So what did I do? I went to the library. Hey, I love libraries. Libraries are great places to visit. Went to the library and went to the magazine section and scanned it and saw Time Magazine and took Time Magazine down, sat down at a desk and thought, I'm going to read this cover to cover, which I did. I don't know if I read every word. I really did look at it closely and I thought, well, if I really want to know what's going on, I need to come back next week and read this magazine again and come back the next week and read it again and again and again. So that was where my political education started. I give Time Magazine credit for this. And then, of course, I quickly discovered Newsweek, which I read as well. So I would come in every week and get Time Magazine and get Newsweek, put them on the desk and flip through them. And of course, I noticed that a lot of the stories overlapped. Some were different. So 
I started there at Brevard College sitting next to a window on a brown table my political education regarding the world. I had no idea where any of it would go or how the world would unfold now. Here we are, 2023. We all know how complicated the world can be and how dangerous it is and how uncertain we are. In 1968, the population of the world was about three and a half billion people. So we've just a little more than doubled the population of the world since 1968. So you double the population, you're going to have more complications, and we're seeing all that play out now. I'm grateful that I picked up the Newsweek and the Time magazines back in 1968 and started to read. It certainly helped me get a little more stable around my knowledge. Did it really help me to make a quote-unquote difference in the world? It probably did. Am I better off for it? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of education. It took me a long time to understand the broad sense of education that can be available to all of us. I am a big fan of going to college. I like school. I think going to school, going to college, getting an education for the sake of learning is probably one of the best things you can do in your life. Of course, you can learn in many, many ways, and college isn't required for everybody to learn. I just love the idea of continuing adult education, whatever approach you take. For me, the college experience at Brevard was my first taste. I said earlier, I flunked out of Brevard. I didn't have an appreciation for education when I went to Brevard. At least it wasn't a traditional appreciation. And it was also probably because I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to do math. My high school education was not that great, actually. Maybe because I just didn't understand how to go about learning. It took me a long time to figure that out. I later went back to college when I was in my 30s after I had flunked out of Brevard College and got an undergraduate degree in, guess what, international relations with a focus on the poets in Russia. And I got that degree at UNCA. So I finally figured out, for me, the value of, of a university education, which is, it just taught me how to appreciate learning. That was all it was. I don't know if I ever used it for a job or not my degree, but I, I do to this day enjoy having the background that I do, and it goes all the way back to that Time magazine and that Newsweek that I picked up all those years ago. It goes back to John and the influences he had on me, making me realize, oh my goodness, there's a big world out there. So that was 1968 and 69. And then in the summer of 1969, John and I got to know each other because he had finished his stint at Brevard College. He was headed down to Mexico to go to, uh, an, an, I think, the American University down there. And he had a summer to spend. So he and I rented a little cottage at a place called Lake Sega. Lake Sega Road in Brevard, North Carolina. And I was going to summer school because I was trying to make up for classes I had flunked. And I was trying to learn how to study, and I, I did okay with it. 
John was just floating around waiting to go to Mexico. He had a little bus, a Volkswagen bus with a peace sign painted on the back. And we lived in this, this cabin. And 1969 was the year that the astronauts landed on the moon. Now, what's really interesting about this, when I was in the seventh grade in 1959, my uh, seventh grade teacher who taught all the classes, we only had one teacher per, per year, his name was Mr. Ramsey. During the science section of our day, he stood in front of my, my seventh grade class and said, there's no way men can ever land on the moon. And I wouldn't say that was when my education began, and I don't know if what Mr. Ramsey said when I was in the seventh grade was part of the reason why I took the Newsweeks, the, the Newsweek and the Time Magazine off the shelf. It might have been, but I do remember sitting there listening to Mr. Ramsey. He had a flat top, crew cut, gray hair, tall fellow, could have been a basketball player muscular, in pretty good shape. He must have had other jobs as well. And he had a tie, and he had his trousers, and he stood in the class and taught. But I, I do remember when he said, nobody can ever land on the moon, I, I thought, this, 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 this man is wrong. Mr. Ramsey doesn't know what he's talking about. I disagreed with Mr. Ramsey. And as it turned out, in 1969, when John and I were living in our little cabin at Lake Sega, we had this tiny black and white TV. And it was wee, wee hours of the morning. And we watched the moon landing on that tiny black and white TV. It was maybe raining. There were some bats flying around because we had bats in the house. So John and I shared the moon landing in a little cabin at Lake Sega in Brevard, North Carolina. That's the kind of stuff that builds relationships over, over the time. So John left. I went back to college for my second year at Brevard and didn't hear much from John. He was down in Mexico, maybe a postcard once or twice. Who knows? We were college buddies. No big deal. That said, when I finished Brevard College, in 1970, and I was 20 years old, I decided to hitchhike to Colorado because I knew John was driving that same, very same Volkswagen bus up to a girlfriend's house in Denver. So I decided that I was going to hitchhike to Denver in June of 1970 and meet John and hang out with him because we were friends. And I was getting that urgency to go somewhere. I wanted to go somewhere, do something, see something, be, be somewhere. That was 1970, and even though it was two years from 1968 when I was 18, two years from 18 to 20 can be rather significant. However, the most significant event, and this is a very specific event that I didn't have anything to do with, I made no decision around it, was the draft lottery. And back then, you ended up with a number from 1 to 365. Well, 365, that's the number of days in a year, and that's the number of birthdays you have. So they had this lottery, and you can go on YouTube now if you want to see it, and you'll see it, no problem, just Google Draft Lottery 1969, and there it is. 
little ping pong balls popped up. And the ping pong balls had numbers on them. So the officials, who were very official, government officials, the ping pong ball would pop up. The official would take the ping pong ball with a number, say like two, and that number would match a birth date, maybe January 3rd. So if your birthday was January 3rd and your number was two, that meant that you were going to be drafted into Vietnam almost tomorrow. So I'm sitting there hoping that I'm going to get a draft number, maybe 347 or 291, anything above 225, and you wouldn't be drafted. So those with lower numbers were the ones that had to go to Vietnam. Well, November the 7th, that's my birthday. And November the 7th got the number 52, which was a low draft number, which meant that I was headed for the draft. I had no idea what I would do about it. And I remember the sinking feeling, thinking, well, I'm going to be dead by the time I'm 20 years old or soon thereafter. So when I finished Brevard, my grades weren't good enough to get into a school anywhere. So I was left with a draft number of 52 and facing the draft, I was in perfect shape. I was young. I couldn't have been a better candidate for going into the army and getting shipped off, drafted, getting shipped off. So I was really nervous. So I thought about joining the Naval Reserve. I thought about joining the Air Force, but there was something about what John and his fellows had talked about something about what I was reading in Time Magazine and Newsweek that kept me from doing that. I, I couldn't bring myself to go in that direction. Something was dramatically wrong. So when I finished with Brevard College, I had no plan except to put my thumb out at the Canton exit on I-40 and hitchhike west to Denver and meet John. I think I was hoping somehow that when I reconnected with John, I would find an answer. Well, I did reconnect with him. He did show up in Denver, and we did spend maybe three days together just hanging around, doing what we did when we were at Brevard, and just talking about life and what we were going to do. During that time, I went into an Army-Navy store, and I went to the back of the Army-Navy store, and I opened a box of bayonets, and I held one of those bayonets in my hand and thought about what it would be like to actually use it on a person. Could I do this? And I will say, a part of me thought maybe I could, which was kind of frightening, really. And then another part of me thought, I cannot do this. I will not do this. I can't do it. And I was aware by that point of the options for getting in and out of the military. I knew there was a conscientious objector option, and there was something about holding that bayonet that made me decide to apply for my conscientious objector status. So that was late June. I hitchhiked back to North Carolina, and I applied for my conscientious objector status, the CO status, it was called. And it was pretty straightforward. The draft board in Asheville had never seen anything like that, I don't think, so I might have been the first one. I based it on my religious experiences in the Methodist Church as a boy. 
I'm not so sure I'm that religious. As I said earlier, I did attend the Brevard College uh, services on Wednesday night and, and, and Sunday. Um, I don't do that much anymore. But I did, I did draw on those sensibilities. And it worked. And I got the CO status. Now, one little variation on that. I got that CO status in August. When I received the notice... I was on another trip. Another buddy named John, John Wyatt, and I, in that in that year, August, had decided we were going to hitchhike to California and up the coast of California to British Columbia. So I went across the country again, hitchhiked all the way this time to California, way beyond Denver, as you probably know, and up the coast to Seattle, and then over the border into Canada, Vancouver, and then we started hitchhiking across British Columbia. And it was very difficult to get rides in British Columbia. I don't know why nobody would pick us up. In the States, no problem. In British Columbia, it was a problem. So somewhere in British Columbia, I called home and my mother said, oh, your conscientious objector status has arrived. You did get your CO status. Your next step now is to find some alternate service, a job to work with. And I hung the phone up and thought, well, I could just stay in Canada and not do my alternate service. But I chose to go back to North Carolina. We did manage to hitchhike. Finally got into Montana, across to Chicago, and then down to, down to Asheville I went. And that's when I applied for my job at Wesley Nursing Center. And eventually, later in the year, 1970, I got the job and started working at Wesley Nursing Center. Well, did my experience at Brevard College with John influence that? Absolutely. Was it essential? Probably. Did it set the tone for the rest of my life? It absolutely did. Back to Reverend Gibbs. While I was there, he's the one that pulled me aside and said, you got to do what you need to do. And as I said earlier, it was a good piece of advice because I had had the opportunity to figure out that timeline I was talking about. So when I finished my alternate service, which was 1972, after having done the two years in Charlotte, I traveled with my girlfriend at the time, Mary Lee Prunell. I traveled with her to New York City, 1972. We hitchhiked. I was, a, I was big on hitchhiking. It was different back then. I don't do it now. I hitchhiked, or we hitchhiked, all the way up to the city and landed in the West Village. And I don't remember much about it other than we stayed with a fellow who was an inventor, and he was really, really fine with us being there for the weekend. And we walked around the West Village, and that was my first taste of New York. The reason why Mary Lee and I were there was because we were going to Europe. Going to Europe back in 1972 was a big deal. It was a migration, really. People were traveling. People were going. They were looking for destiny, their destiny. They were looking for God. They were looking for answers. So was I, I guess. So Mary Lee and I had a couple of round-trip tickets on Icelandic Air. $145 round-trip, I think it was the cost. And we flew through Iceland and landed in Luxembourg. And when we were in Luxembourg, 
we decided to go to Paris. It was September. It was already getting cool in Luxembourg. We didn't really come prepared. We were going to camp out along the road. Unfortunately, we only had one sleeping bag. My idea had been, we'll buy our equipment when we get to Europe. I was thinking Europe would have lots of camping stores. Didn't really have that many, or at least I didn't know how to find them. So Marilee and I landed in Luxembourg and we decided to go to Paris. And off we went to Paris, September 1972. And when we got there, this fellow offered me a job helping him move furniture. But I really wanted to go out and be part of the youth movement. I didn't want to really want to move furniture. So I, I did it for a day or two, and then I bagged it. Well, the trip was terrible. We had a horrible time, really. We were so confused, and we didn't know what we were doing, and we just bounced around and wandered about. And after about five or six days, if that, we decided to just return to the States. So Marilee and I came back to the States and settled into... A, a life that led us through our 20s. Marilee and I didn't stay together, although we did continue to know each other for the rest of our lives. Sadly, she left this earth about three years ago due to cancer. So many people go down because of cancer. You know that as well as I do. And I wish I had the time here to tell you all the stories that happened to me, to Marilee, and to all the other people in our 20s. Since we don't have that time, what I will say is, when I was 31, I was an adult returning student, and I went back to college at UNCA, as I mentioned earlier, to get my undergraduate degree. And that was when I learned how to study. That was when I was able to use the information Reverend Gibbs gave me, really fill it out, really make things happen. And so I went to UNCA when I was 31 years old, and I was there from the time I was 31 until the time I was 35. I studied international relations. I studied French. I studied theater. I enjoyed every minute of it. I got good grades. I think I graduated in 1985 with a 3.8 grade point average. So much better than my poor little slim 1.6 grade average when I finished Brevard College. So when I graduated in 1985 from UNCA, I decided to go to Paris. Now, John was living in Paris. Lo and behold, he had moved to Paris. He had a little flat on Rue Dauphine, which is in the 6th arrondissement, and he was living there. We exchanged postcards. I got his phone number from his sister, who was in fact living in Seattle. I rang him up and said, hey man, are you in Paris? He said, yeah, sure, I'm here come on over. So I bought a ticket and in June of 1985, I went to Paris to see John and he was living in this little flat. And guess what? He's still in the same flat to this day. It's a 300 square foot, more or less one room apartment on the top floor of one of the beautiful Paris buildings that, that they've been there since the 1700s or longer. Who knows? And I visit John often. Over the years, we have become like brothers. He's family. It would be fair to say that even though we share no blood, he's, he's my brother. And when you have that kind of depth in a relationship, it's something to be grateful for. Back to Reverend Gibbs. That may have been what Reverend Gibbs was talking about when he said, really make the best of it. Because when you get old, 
all you will have will, will be your memories. All you will have will be your experiences to draw on. And sure, it's one thing to sail the seven seas and have the great adventures and watch the waves come and the sunrise come and the rest of the adventure happen. That's one thing, and I've done plenty of that. But what I really value, I value the the people that I care about, the, the loved ones, like John, who is in, still in Paris. And here I sit at Paul's house and Paul's family with his, his daughter and his wife, Emily, and, and I, I'm so grateful for that. So I'm sitting in this chair after having just returned from Paris visiting John. Now we're in our 70s. I'm reminded of the line of poetry that I often quote, Charles Wright wrote it in his Poem Lonesome Pine special. I have quoted it before. It's worth worth taking a, another run at it right now. It's about beauty. And what is beauty? Are we talking about beauty as something that looks gorgeous on the wall? Are we talking about a face? Are we talking about design? Maybe everything is beautiful. But here's what Charles Wright says about beauty, and I tie this to love and relationships and friendships and, and the depth that we have with the people we care about. Uh, Charles Wright says, it's true, I think, as Kinko says in his idleness, all beauty begins with disappearance, the bitten edges of things, the gradual sliding away into tissue and memory, the uncertainty and dazzling impermanence of days we beg our meanings from and their frayed loveliness. I'll say it again. It's true, I think, as Kinko says in his idleness, all beauty begins with disappearance, the bitten edges of things, the gradual sliding away into tissue and memory, the uncertainty and dazzling impermanence of days we beg our meanings from, and their frayed loveliness. So when I think about Reverend Gibbs back at Wesley Nursing Center and his frayed loveliness, his cigar, his robe, the ashes on his robe. I think of beauty. I told you I met Paul Devlin in 1996 at the National Poetry Slam Championships in Portland. That's a different story. It's another story. It's a very rich story. Paul and I have been friends since then. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. We have aged beauty, the frayed loveliness, the uncertainty and dazzling impermanence of days we beg our meanings from and their frayed loveliness. You never really think about a day as having frayed loveliness, and yet the days do go fast, they do fray, they do drift into the night, and the uncertainty, the uncertainty is always there. I think Reverend Gibbs wanted me to know that. So now, here I sit telling you this story. I'm recording it on my laptop into a program called Hindenburg Journalist. It's an editing program. And I'm watching the time signature go across my screen. No different than what Reverend Gibbs was talking about. Each little word that I say appears on the screen as a time signature, as a vocal signature, as a voice signature. And some go up and some go down, depending on how loud or quiet I am. And that's the rhythm of our lives. So when I was a young boy in my father's 
radio studio down in the basement listening to that shortwave radio, I knew there was more. When I met John at Brevard College, he confirmed that knowledge that I had. And then when I hitchhiked, I found out more. When I went back to college, I learned some French and I found out more. When I have stopped on my way from here to there and thought about that timeline, I've been really surprised at how quickly I went from 20 to 73. It went fast. Everybody says that, and it's really true. But you know, time does not go fast or slow. Time simply exists, and we move through our lives inside the frames that we create for ourselves. We call that time. And I'm glad for time. It's a theme. It's a beautiful theme to think of especially when you have no watch on your wrist and especially when you're not looking at your smartphone trying to figure out what time is it. The time is right for us to all do what Reverend Gibbs said to do. And I am thinking right now of him, the retired Methodist minister, and all these years later, it's as if he's right here in his chair as I am in my chair, talking to the world, preaching. Reverend Gibbs was a preacher. I am not a preacher, but maybe I would like to be. So with that note, I'm going to say amen. Thank you, Reverend Gibbs. I'm going to say to all of you out there listening, thank you ever so much. Doing this radio show has been one of the greatest pleasures of my life. Not this specific show, but the entire seven years that I've been working in this environment. Community radio. We're all about each other. Or at least we try to be. And on that note, hey, you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. We do appreciate it. Robin Collier, you and Taos, Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI. You broadcast all the way up into Colorado. I appreciate that, and, and so do many others as well. So thank you, Robin Collier. And if you'd like to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I love to tell stories. I would really like to know yours. So if you have one to tell, feel free to send me an email, and, and, and I'd love to hear it. And we can connect and make that happen. And I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing, build up your writing chops, be part of a community, imaginativestorm.com is a great place to look. I host a, a free workshop every Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, with my creative collaborator on Zoom. 
Her name is Allegra Houston, and we're on Zoom, as I said. So I hope you can join us. So there you go. End of this story. More stories to come. I'm glad you're with with us. I'm glad you're listening to this. And I do appreciate it. And I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.